0: Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to come together to worship you, to give praise to our God. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to open your word. We pray that you would speak to our hearts, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles with me. To Isaiah chapter 6, as we conclude our three part mini series on revival. Today we are talking about the result of revival. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, as we look at Isaiah's experience. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah is witnessing a vision of God sitting on his throne Dazzling brightness, the splendor is unsurpassed, and above the throne of God, there are two seraphim angels, and they are covering their faces and their feet and flying above the throne of God, proclaiming His holiness, holy, holy, holy. Some scholars believe that this is an allusion to the triune God. They're in the repetition of holy, holy, holy. And in the midst of this incredible scene of God sitting on his throne in vision, I would imagine that likely Isaiah, even in vision, is squinting because of the glory of God which is unsurpassed to human eyes. And in verse 5, we have the universal reaction of anyone that has seen God. He says, woe is me. Now, I want to look at a few verses prior to Isaiah chapter 6 because you'll see that this term woe is used numerous times building up to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 3 verse 9, woe to their soul for they have brought evil upon themselves. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 11, Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 8, Woe to those who join house to house, they add field to field. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 11, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may follow intoxicating drink. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 18, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity, and sin as if with a cart rope. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 through 22, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink. And then he sees God, and he says, Woe is me. In the verses and the chapters prior to the experience of chapter 6, he's saying woe to, to that person, and woe to this person, woe to that individual. But suddenly he sees God in his glory, and he says, woe is me. This is the universal reaction of individuals that have had an experience with God. Remember Peter, he said, depart from me, for I am a sinful Man, this paradigm of recognizing one's wretchedness after seeing the purity of God is is something that Isaiah is experiencing, and notice his language. He says, "'Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips.'" Why? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What a reference point Isaiah has for his own lack of righteousness. I heard a prominent speaker a number of years ago. And she said, I haven't sinned in two years. That kind of sounds prideful, doesn't it? And there is a statement that I reflect on many times. The closer you come to Jesus, the more faulty you will appear in your own eyes. It's easy to look good as long as we're comparing ourselves amongst ourselves, isn't it? At least I'm not as bad as that person. Did you see her? Or him uh, we, we call it a relative righteousness easy to look good as long as you're comparing yourself among ourselves or ourselves among ourselves the closer you come to jesus the more faulty you will appear in your own eyes for your vision will be clearer and your imperfections will be seen in broad and distinct contrast to his perfect nature But do not be discouraged. This is evidence that Satan's delusions have lost their power. That the vivifying influence of the Spirit of God is arousing you and your indifference and unconcern are passing away. This is the paradox. The closer we come to Jesus, the more faulty we appear. In our own eyes... It's important to keep our eyes on Jesus, not our own faults. But I, I don't believe that any Christian will come to the place of prideful arrogance for their own spirituality. Sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Spiritual pride. So, so the closer we come to Jesus, the more faulty we will appear in our own eyes. And I believe that there will come a day when God looks down, like he said, to Noah and says, here is a perfect man, but that is God's perspective, not ours. And it's not perfection because of our merit, it's perfection because of the merits of Jesus Christ that are applied to our account. So here Isaiah is going through a dramatic transformation because he is rebuking other individuals, pointing out the faults of others. Woe to this person, woe to that person. He sees God, and he says, woe is me, for I'm undone. For I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King. And I have talked with countless individuals that are newly baptized into the church, They come to me later and say, Pastor, I thought this church was perfect. (laughs) They start to see the foibles and the wrinkles and the warts because the church is made up of people. And as long as we are in that proper perspective of keeping our eyes on Jesus, we can look at others with compassion recognizing if it wasn't for the grace of God, there go I. So look, look at the steps. Isaiah sees God. He recognizes his own sinfulness. And in verse 6, beautiful story here, then one of the seraphim, the angels, flew to me having in his hand a live coal which he had taken from the tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth with it. And behold... He said, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Isaiah has just experienced forgiveness. He's experienced justification, the gospel. Look at the progression. He sees God. He recognizes his own need. His sin is forgiven. This is a transformative experience. And it always begins and ends with a vision of God. Transformation. His sins are forgiven. This is the way the gospel works, friends. Righteousness by faith. His sin is taken away. Praise God for the good news of the gospel. But the story does not end here. He has just experienced transformation, forgiveness, justification, the gospel, whatever you want to call it. And in verse 8, notice what happens afterwards. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Plural, again, an implication of the Trinity, the triune God. Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And notice the spontaneous response of Isaiah. He says, here am I. Send me. He didn't have to be manipulated. The pastor didn't have to get up front and say, please share your faith. There was no compelling. This was not a command. This was a spontaneous response by Isaiah. After experiencing the grace of god it was asked whom shall i send and who will go for us isaiah said send me sharing one's faith is the natural spontaneous response of experiencing the gospel it's what you want to do there there is, are certain types of news that you just can't keep to yourself. Uh, my wife and I discovered uh, that we're going to have a baby. And after we got over the initial shifting of priorities and reframing and the initial surprise, we got excited And I had to tell somebody. I called my parents and said, are you together? And I said, we're going to have a baby. There's there's certain news that you just can't keep to yourself. And this is the greatest news of all. And here, Isaiah says, look, I will go. And I think that sometimes we have framed witnessing in terms of a guilt trip. You ever felt guilty? Pastor gets up, the elder, you should share your faith. The reality is, you experience Jesus sharing your faith is spontaneous. It flows from this reality, and if at one time you were on fire for Jesus, and that fire has dwindled, go back And follow the steps of Isaiah. Look at the beauty of Jesus in Scripture. Experience the grace of God. And you won't help but be able to share. Isaiah said, here am I. Send me. Steps of Christ, 78, says, No sooner does one come to Christ than there is born in his heart a desire to make known to others what a precious friend he has found in Jesus. Every person born into the kingdom of God is born as a missionary. I heard a statement once that said, you are either a missionary or you are a mission field. You're either a missionary or a mission field. Very quickly, I want to look at another statement. And he who seeks to give his... Light to others will himself be blessed. God could have reached His object in saving sinners without our aid, but in order for us to develop a character like Christ, we must share in His work. God didn't have to use us. He could have called angels to do His work. Now, who would you rather give a Bible study? Pastor Shin or Gabriel? I hope he said Gabriel. Remember Daniel chapter 9? Daniel chapter 8, he knows his Bible. But God has entrusted with us this precious task of being his ambassadors, of sharing the gospel with others. And this is one reason. In order for us to develop a character like Christ, we must share in his work. There's something that happens to us as we share Jesus with others. It keeps us from navel-gazing, looking at our own problems and becoming just a community and a club amongst ourselves. I want to go very quickly to uh, almost an identical passage in the book of Romans. Go to Romans chapter 10 here. Paul has, in the preceding chapters, talked about the beauty of the gospel. And this is a fascinating passage In Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 15, I want you to see it there in your own Bible. Romans chapter 10, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead you will be, what does your Bible say? You will be saved. The gospel is simple. This is not to say that the, that the gospel is not deep. Throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, we'll be studying the depths of the gospel when it comes to the, the rudimentary basics of the gospel. The Bible tells us, That if you call on the name of the Lord, by faith, you will be saved. Do you believe that? Uh, You accept Jesus as your Savior, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. No questions asked. That is what Paul is describing here. You accept Jesus, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, righteousness by faith, His Life stands for your life, and when God sees you, He doesn't see you. He sees the life of Jesus, the righteousness of Christ. You can have this right now. Accept Jesus and have the assurance of salvation. Very simple. Very basic. That if you confess with your mouth, verse 9, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So he, he's building the, the beauty of the gospel, and I know that we as a denomination historically have struggled with the notion of assurance. You know, we, we struggled and grappled in the context of living in the antitypical day of atonement. How do I know I am saved? The Bible says, accept Jesus, and you will know that you are saved. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, that is good news. Amen? And Paul goes on telling us that this good news does not discriminate. Verse 11. For the Scripture says, whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is over all, is rich to all who call upon him, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, the gospel does not discriminate. It doesn't matter if you're black or white or Asian or Hispanic or native. The gospel is available to all. No prejudice, no bigotry, no discrimination. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, Paul has just established the beauty of the gospel, and while we are celebrating how simple the gospel is, how available the gospel is, how anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, he doesn't end there and he starts to make us feel just a little bit uncomfortable because he goes on. I want you to read it there in your own Bible. Here it is in verse 14. After he has just established the beauty of the gospel in verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach without? unless they are sent. Now, I have it here in the New Living Translation because for some reason it just just brings it home to me personally. Here it is, verse 14 in the New Living Translation. But how can they call on Him to save them unless they believe in Him? And how can they believe in Him if they have never heard about Him? And how can they hear about Him unless someone tells them? In other words... A message that is wonderful and sublime and beautiful and available to all doesn't do any good if the message is never delivered. You can have the greatest message in the world, but if it is never delivered to the recipients, it is as good as no message at all. This is what Paul is saying. He's just established the beauty of the gospel. It is good news to every person. You just have to call on the name of the Lord, and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, no questions asked. And he says, look, this is a great message, but unless the message is delivered, it's no good. What if I wrote you a check for a million dollars? Now, this is never going to happen, even if I wanted to. And I put it in the mail, and it got lost. It does you no good. I think of this story that came out in the paper just last year. A gentleman during World War II, while fighting in Europe, wrote to his beloved girlfriend. This is Bill Moore, 1945, wrote to his beloved girlfriend, Bernadine. He wrote her a love letter. I have an excerpt from this love letter. Now, this was made public, so I'm not infringing on privacy here. This came up in the newspaper. All right, here's an excerpt. My darling, lovable, alluring Bernadine, I ran out of space, but I could have written a lot more adjectives describing you. You are so lovely, darling, that I often wonder how it is possible that you are mine. I'm really the luckiest guy in the world, you know, and you are the reason, Bernadine. Even, if even your name sounds lovely to me. It's just when I get so horribly, terribly lonely for you that I write letters like this. I have never been so homesick for anyone in my life as I am for you. Wow. Is that a good message to Bernadine? He sent that letter and the post office lost it. It was delivered 70 years later. (laughs) Bernadine had died six years before. It was a wonderful message. Would have warmed her heart. It was sent but never delivered. You see, a good message depends on a faithful messenger. Amen? And here we are, possessing a knowledge of the greatest news in the world. And God has entrusted to us, you know, we're like the US Post Office or Federal Express, whatever you want to call it. We are God's ambassadors to deliver the message. The message is dependent on a faithful messenger. And a message that is not sent is as good as no message at all. Many times we think of witnessing as something that we say But really, it begins with who we are. I think of this quotation from Ministry of Healing, page 470. Here it is. The strongest argument in favor of the gospel is a loving and lovable Christian. You can say all you want, but if it doesn't come from a character that is reflecting Jesus, it doesn't do any good. It's not only a witness in word, it's also a witness in life. Witness in character as to who we are. A message that is not sent is as good as no message at all. Some people may ask, you know, what can I do? I'm only one person and I read this interesting statistic a number of years ago. If an evangelist could win 1,000 people to Christ every day, how long do you think it would take to reach the whole world? I'd be glad to win 1,000 people a day. 1,000 people a day, how long would it take? And I looked on the Internet, and this is approximately, according to UNICEF, estimates that an average of 353,000 babies are born every day. Around the world, 154,889 deaths take place as, as a daily average. Thus, the net gain, roughly, give or take, is 200,000 more people being added to the population every single day. So, if you're depending on the evangelists and the clergy, we're going to be here forever. Forever. All right? It's just not going to work. But but I, I came across this interesting idea. All right. Suppose that you led only one person each year to Christ by the grace of God. You made a commitment. This year I want to win one person to Jesus. One person. I think by the grace of God, we can. Reveal the character of Christ to one person a year, lead them to the foot of the cross. And then when that person accepted Jesus, you would train and disciple them to make a commitment to do the same thing. So they would make the same pledge I'm going to win one person to Christ a year, and then train that person. So for the rest of our lives, we say, you know what, I'm going to train one person to lead someone to Jesus after they have accepted Christ. And here is the progression it begins. Very innocuously. Oh, wow. Here we go. All right. After one year, there are only two disciples. All right, so it starts small. At the end of the second year, four. Third year, eight. Fourth year, 16. Now, you're thinking by this point, this is just not going to make a big effect. But when you go through the multiplication process of discipleship, here we have it. All right. However, by year 33, you will have more than 8.5 billion Christians. Billion. And then if you, just for fun, if you were to go on further, by year 35, you would have 34 billion Christians. So, so God has, has made it very, very approachable. Or I, I, very bite-sized pieces. You know, if all of us in this room would say, "Lord, I know that there's someone in Anchorage that is longing for something more. Help me to lead someone to Jesus Christ." And there is no greater high than seeing someone. Accept Jesus into their life for the first time. There is nothing like it. I have seen an atheist accept Jesus, and in that experience, in that dialogue, my last district, with my associate pastor and I, as this, as this atheist, has seen a revelation of the character of God, and I posed the question, is there anything keeping you from accepting Jesus into your heart right now? Right now. And she says, no, nothing. And I said, do you want to pray right now and accept Jesus? I mean, we're just giving the invitation, the message. You know? Do you want to? accept Jesus right now? And she says, yes. And I want to tell you, I say, look, repeat after me, Lord, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I accept Jesus into my heart and she repeats those words after me. We say amen. And I want to tell you that our tears are flowing and there is a peace that comes over her soul because she has just consented to invite Jesus into her life. And this young lady right now, Is in China as a medical missionary. Praise God. We are his ambassadors. We don't have to do the work of the Holy Spirit. That was very liberating to me as a pastor. The Holy Spirit convicts. And when you see the wind blow, you give the invitation. And the Lord is responsible for the entire process. We are His ambassadors. I'd like to close with this verse Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount says, You are the light of the world. A city. That is set on a hill cannot be hid, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it gives light unto all that are in the house. Let your light shine before men. There are people in your life that God has strategically placed next to you. Are you strategically next to them. And it is our God-given privilege to be a faithful messenger for Him. Amen. Amen. Let us bow our heads together as we pray. Our Father in heaven, may we daily experience what Isaiah experienced. Father, we thank you that the gospel is profoundly simple, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord, if there's someone here that has not accepted you as their personal Savior, may you impress upon their hearts the reality that they can know that they are saved right now. Father, if our hearts have grown cold, we pray that you would revive us. And through this experience, we pray that we would respond like Isaiah in saying, Here am I. Send me to carry